Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Mark chapter 5, where my Bible is open. And if you'll be finding a Bible and turning it to Mark chapter 5 as well, that's where we will be for the entirety of the lesson. Make it really easy for you this morning to follow along. We'll just work within the text for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Mark chapter 5, let me say how great it is to see everybody on this bright and sunny Lord's Day morning. I'm glad to be here. And I trust that you are able to say the same as well. What a joy and what a privilege it is to be able to be in God's house with God's people doing God's things as we glorify and worship Him and at that very same time give and receive encouragement and edification. If you're visiting with us, we thank you so very much for being with us today. You've caught us on a Sunday when we are revisiting our preaching theme for 2018 as we are spending some very deliberate and focused time with Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the Bible says that people were able to tell that Peter and John and the other disciples that they had been with Jesus by virtue of, by the virtue of the way that they lived, by how they talked and how they walked in their life. And in the very same way, we want people to recognize that about us. That by the way that we live, by the way that we talk, the way that we act, people are able to say, you know what, those folks, those folks are with Jesus, And that is why we are being very deliberate this year to encounter Jesus in the pages of the gospel so that we can know Him better and draw closer to Him. And that's going to begin this morning for us in Mark the 5th chapter. Read with me in verse number 1. We'll just start in verse 1. In Mark 5 and in verse 1, there the Bible says that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. I'd like for you to think for just a moment about power. What is the most powerful thing that you can think of? There's lots of things that come to our mind when we think of power. Maybe you would think of something like, like an atomic bomb, a weapon that has the power to obliterate an entire city or an entire country in just a single blast of, of heat and fire and force. Or maybe what you would think of is maybe instead of a man-made force of power, maybe you would think of a natural force of power. Maybe you would think of something like like a hurricane. We've certainly seen evidence of that just in the past year, haven't we? Forces of nature like Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, all the damage and destruction that those hurricanes were able to do. Maybe when you think about power in kind of a slightly different fashion, maybe you would think of a of a world leader. Someone who has the power to command large armies of men and affect change on a global scale. We often talk about the power that like our president wields and uh, you're kind of the most powerful man on the planet, we often say. And when I think about power, I think about when I was a kid. Remember the first time that I saw one of those rockets launch off into space? Sometimes they put that camera there on the gantry, so you're kind of getting the bird's eye view of this rocket, and it's shaking and trembling. And I just remember being so impressed with the power, the power that it takes to escape the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's gravitational pull. Man, that is power. Yet whatever you are thinking of this morning, I'm going to submit to you that as powerful as all of those things are in their own right, none of them can hold a candle to the power that is demonstrated in Mark the 5th chapter. Because in this great chapter, we are all given a front row seat to the power of Jesus 
Jesus the miracle worker. Last week, our Bible reading schedule took us to Luke chapter 8, which is actually the parallel account to Mark chapter 5. And instead of using Luke's account, I want to use Mark's account this morning because it is an incredible account that highlights not one, not two, but three powerful miracles that Jesus performed right in succession. In what appears to be just a single afternoon, Jesus will exercise extraordinary miraculous power. Power that overcomes demons. Power that overcomes disease. Power that even overcomes death. And in these three cases, all of which seem like hopeless cases to the people who are involved, what we're going to see is that there is hope to be found, and that found that hope is found in Jesus the Christ because He possesses awesome power. This morning I want us to just tag along with Jesus. And I want us to be amazed. In some ways we're going to kind of maybe be revisiting maybe some of the, the awe that we had as children or as younger people when we first heard and read these stories. I want us to be amazed at the power that Jesus possesses. And as we do that this morning, I must tell you, there's going to be a strong temptation for us to, to kind of get sidetracked with all kinds of peripheral issues. We're going to be tempted to say, wow, look at those pigs. Well, what about the pigs there? What's going on with the pigs in this story? There's going to be a temptation for us to say, hey, what's the deal there? What's the deal there with this person being healed because they touched Jesus' robe? Is there something magical about his clothing? We'll be tempted as well to speculate about, well, why did Jesus only let three of His apostles go into Jairus' house and the miracle that was in Why didn't the other guys get to go inside? There's going to be lots of details in this story that's going to pique our curiosity. It's going to cause us to ask all kinds of questions. But I must tell you, if we start chasing those rabbits all over the place, we're going to just miss it. The Gospel writers, and Mark in particular, They want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You watch Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Yeah, there's other stuff going on on this. But you stay focused on the Lord. Look at the astonishing power of Jesus the Christ as evidenced by these back-to-back-to-back miracles. Are you ready to do that this morning? To watch Jesus in action? Let's see what we can learn from these three amazing demonstrations of the power of Jesus. And that all begins here at the beginning of the chapter with this man who is possessed by demons. He is a man who's not given by name, but we've simply come to know him as the garrison demoniac. Read with me in verse 1. Jesus actually in the last chapter has just demonstrated tremendous power over the forces of nature. He's calmed the stormy sea. Then look at what happens. Mark 5, verse 1 again. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind Him anymore, not even with a chain. For He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but He wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. 
and cutting himself with stones. You know, I've always found it interesting that verse 2 says that Jesus got out of the boat, but there's no mention of any of the disciples getting out of the boat too. And I've got a pretty good guess as to why they didn't want to get out of the boat because I'm not so sure that I would have wanted to get out of the boat. This guy, this wild man, comes rushing up, possessed with demons. And he is a wild man. And one of the reasons that I wanted us to look specifically at Mark's account this morning, as opposed to Luke, is because of some of the additional details that Mark gives us there in verses 4 and 5. Did you notice there in verses 4 and 5? Mark explains that this man, he is very literally out of control. Nobody can do anything with him. This man breaks chains. He has supernatural strength. He has been driven away from society. People are terrified of this man. Maybe they know that he's demon-possessed. Maybe some people just think he's, he's insane, that he's a crazy person. He's living alone amongst the tombs on the outskirts of society. He cuts himself. He's howling night and day. What a terror this man must have been to the people who live there locally. Who could even be near such a person as this? No one can do anything for him. And what we're seeing here in these opening verses of Mark chapter 5 is that this, this is what demons do. There's lots about demon possession that we really just don't know. And I'm just afraid we're not ever going to know in this lifetime. I get lots of questions for Q&A about demons. What about demon possession? Why'd that happen? What was that all about? What kind of power did demons possess? And I don't know everything about all of that. But maybe this right here, this picture in Mark chapter 5, maybe it best illustrates what demons were all about. And that is that demons were used by the devil to destroy human beings to disfigure and to demolish in them the very image of God. Think about it. These demons, they have taken this man. They have isolated him away from other people. They have made it impossible for anybody to be around this man. They hurt him. They cause him to hurt himself. And so verse 6 says, verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I want you to notice how immediately, that is Mark's favorite word, immediately the demons are waving the white flag of surrender. These demons recognize... We've got no chance here. We stand no chance at all. We're not going to fight Jesus. That would be a losing battle. They know that Jesus is in charge. They know that He is sent from God, that He has power over them. They recognize that they are defeated the moment that Jesus arrives. Verse 8, For He was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, verse 9, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion in a Roman army was a division of 6,000 men. That name, and understanding that name, coupled with what verse 13 goes on to say about the 2,000 pigs, and we'll get to the pigs, 
You put that information together and it leads us to conclude that this man was probably possessed by hundreds, if not thousands of demons. What is that like? What kind of miserable existence has this poor man had to live? And what kind of demonic power is all concentrated in the body of that one man? The disciples don't want to get out of the boat. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have wanted to get out of the boat. But Jesus, Jesus never flinches because Jesus knows that He possesses the power. Verse 10, the man begged Him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged Him saying, send us to the pigs. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So He gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. I want you to see that the focus in this passage clearly is on the power of Jesus. It's on how many demons Jesus cast out. It's how Jesus was able to subdue this man when no one else was able to do so. It's about how Jesus then sent this number of demons, sent them into this giant herd of pigs. Mark wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to stand in awe of the unrivaled, unmatched power that our Lord possesses. And when Jesus sends those demons into that herd of swine, they go crazy just like the man had went crazy. They're just as out of control as He was as they rushed down into the Sea of Galilee and they drowned. Now, of course, as soon as you say something about the pigs, here it comes. What about the pigs? Why did Jesus send them into pigs? Why didn't Jesus just send them away into, you know, send them off into the netherworld or wherever demons go? Why did He choose pigs? What's the meaning behind that? What's that all about? And of course, There's been all kinds of speculation that's been done about that through the years. All kinds of explanations that have been offered. My favorite explanation, there was a commentator who said, these pigs were owned by Jewish swine herders. And since no Jew had any business owning or raising pigs... This was Jesus' kind of backhanded way of taking a swipe at these bad Jews who obviously weren't obeying dietary kosher laws. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty extraordinary explanation, but the fact is, the text doesn't say that. We don't know that. That's nothing but just human speculation. And really all that speculating and every other kind of idea that we might offer, all that does is it detracts from the main thing. I don't know very much at all about demon possession. And I don't know why Jesus sent these demons into the pigs, but I do know this. I know that the pigs aren't important. What's important is this man who was saved by the power of Jesus Christ. When we get all focused and fixated on the pigs, what happens is is we make the same mistake that the people there made. Did you notice that? Look at verse 14 again. It says that all the people came out asking, wanting to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15 now. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, 
And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Notice this. And they also described what had happened to the pigs. Oh, see, there you go. It's all about the pigs. Hey, you should have saw what happened to these pigs. Let me tell you about the pigs. It's not about the pigs. But look at what happens when you do focus on the pigs. Verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. What we need to see from this first miracle in Mark chapter 5 is that the destruction of those swine, it shows clearly what it was that demons intended to do. And that is they intended to kill and destroy and hurt and deliver this man that Jesus has delivered by His power. You want to keep the main thing, the main thing? That's usually what I like to do. The point here is that Jesus had the power to rescue people from the power of the devil. It's not about the pigs. The pigs are not important. It's about Jesus, the one who is able to rescue and save a soul from the power and the controlling influence of Satan. That is the power that we see on display here. Would you notice again verse 17? What happens when you fixate on the wrong thing? Verse 17 says, But they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Sometimes when people don't understand, when people don't understand, they get afraid. And when people don't understand and when they get afraid, they start focusing on on the wrong things. And when people focus on the wrong things, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters, they're going to say exactly what these people said. Eh, Jesus, uh, it's just best you go someplace else. We, we're not ready for all of that around here. I want you to notice what's said in the very next verse. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat. That's a statement actually worth underlining in your Bible. Because what that shows us is that shows us that if you ask Jesus to go... I'm not interested in Jesus. Don't want Jesus. Guess what? Jesus will go. He will leave. Jesus is not going to get down on His hands and knees and beg, please, please, pretty please, let me stay around a little while longer. Let me explain all of this. Let me do another miracle. Maybe that will convince you. Nope. Nope. You ask Jesus to leave, and that's exactly what He will do. And in fact, maybe we can take some cues from Jesus in our evangelistic effort. Sometimes we work with people. We work with them for a very long time. But when it becomes evident that folks are not interested in Jesus and they ask us to leave, we need to respect that. And we need to just take Jesus and His power and His message to somebody who does want it. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Verse 18, As He was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Him that He might be with Him. He did not permit him, but he did say to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now that's a little bit different from Jesus' regular MO. Because normally whenever Jesus performs a healing, he usually instructs the person not to tell anybody. Don't say anything to anyone. But Jesus lets this guy. The reason Jesus normally kind of nips that in the bud is because Well, when people start hearing about Jesus, then what happens? Everybody throngs to Jesus. Jesus can't hardly even like walk through the streets because there's so many people around Him. But this man, 
This man is permitted to go and tell of the wondrous deeds that Jesus had done. And why? Well, I believe it's because this man was going to a place where Jesus would never return to. There is no record of Jesus ever returning to this region again. And so Jesus instructs him, you go back to where you're from and you start telling everybody about what has taken place. Verse 20, And so he went away. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. These people, they got it. The people back on the hillside where the pigs were, they didn't get it. But these people in the Decapolis in that area, they do get it. They marvel at Jesus' power to rescue a man from the power of the devil. But Jesus' day is just getting started. Continue reading verse 21 now. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him and He was beside the sea. This is Jesus' normal stomping grounds where He's been doing lots of teaching. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. I want you to please pause right here and make sure you see the significance of what is happening here. Who came and fell down at Jesus' feet? Who was it again? A ruler of the synagogue? No, 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 that, that can't possibly be. Because up to this point in Jesus' life, Jesus and the religious establishment, they are completely at odds. Always button heads. They do not get along. These are the very people who are plotting to destroy Jesus. They are not His friends. They're not interested in what He is doing. They're trying to turn people away from Jesus. And yet this man, a ruler of the synagogue, He has come and He has fallen down at the feet of Jesus. His name is Jairus. And we read in verse 23 that He implored Jesus earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Stop and think for a moment about what Jairus cast aside in order to come to Jesus. He has cast aside His dignity. He's fallen on his face. He's cast aside his prejudices, his pride. He's maybe even cast aside his friends, some of those people who were opposing Jesus. He's maybe even risking his job, his livelihood. The ruler of the synagogue was the man who was in charge of all of the physical arrangements, such as getting the speaker lined up, getting all the books prepared, getting everything in order and ready for the Sabbath day when worship would take place there. Are are they still going to allow him to do that in the synagogue? If he now identifies himself as a follower, as a believer in Jesus, how are all the powers that be in Jerusalem, how are they going to look at that? Jairus doesn't care. He comes to Jesus and He says, I need you, Lord. I need you. My daughter is dying. Verse 24, notice what's said there. And He went with Him. You know, sometimes we just kind of motor right by little phrases like that. But I want you to please notice here that Jesus did not say, No, pal, can't help you. Sorry, can't help you. You're part of that group of those people who are trying to 
abolish me. You're part of that group that's trying to stop my mission. You're part of those people who are always trying to pick a fight with me, who are always pointing the finger at me about the things that I teach and the things that I practice. I don't have time for you, buddy, and people of your ill. Go to Jerusalem. Maybe some of your buddies up there, maybe they can help your daughter. I can't do anything for you. Nope. Verse 24 says that he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, if I'm reading that story for the very first time, I'm on the edge of my seat at this point. I'm waiting with bated breath. What's going to happen next? What's it going to be like when Jesus walks into the house of a ruler of the synagogue? And what about his daughter? How sick is she? Are they going to get there in time to help her? But right in the middle of all of those questions, there appears this really sick woman. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. As if Jesus didn't already have enough on His plate for this day, look at what happens on the way to Jairus' house. We do not know much about this woman, and we don't know all the specifics of her particular affliction. It seems to be a hemorrhage of some kind, but we're really not certain about it. We're really not certain about why she suffered with this for the past 12 years. But what we can be certain of is that she sees the need that Jairus saw. She sees her need... For Jesus. Please remember that under the law of Moses, this woman's disease would have made her ceremonially unclean. She was unclean all of the time. There were so many things she could not do and not be involved in. She could not go down to the temple or to the synagogue and be involved in the worship there. She could not maneuver through society like other normal functioning people could. And any other person that she touches would then make that person unclean as well. That means then that she is now very, very isolated in her life. She cannot just go up to somebody and just give them a hug. She's not at liberty to do that. Her existence for these past 12 years has been miserable and it's getting worse, the text says. She is in poverty. Her health continues to decline. But verse 27 says that she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. You know, at this point in Jesus' ministry, people are just clamoring to not only get sight of Jesus, but to get close enough to where they could actually touch Him, to touch His physical body. We read that back in chapter 3 of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 10. People realize that just touching Him, that that could bring healing to their ailments. But here in verse 27, this woman isn't even going to touch Jesus' physical body. She's just going to touch just the tip, the hem of His garment. Verse 28, For she said, if I touch even His garments, I will be made well. Wow. Is Jesus really that powerful? That even the touch of His clothing could bring a healing. Now what we expect to happen next is Jesus is going to to stop the procession and He's going to wave His hands, 
And he's going to invoke some kind of, you know, magic words and say some things and, you know, do some real Jesus-y stuff. Smoke's going to appear. going to shoot lightning bolt out of his fingers. And all kinds of ballyhoo is going to accompany this miracle. And by the way, while we're thinking about that, well, well, what about Jairus? And what about his daughter? They've been on pause while all of this is taking place. How much power does Jesus really possess? Verse 28. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. When she touched Jesus, she felt something immediately. Do you know what? When she touched his clothing, Jesus felt something too. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? Mark, once again, did you notice there in verse 30? He's keeping the emphasis on Jesus' power. Jesus noticed that power had flowed out of him. Who touched me, he asked. And the disciples, as they usually do, they're kind of quick to jump in there and think like they just know better than Jesus. Look at what they say. Look at verse 31. The disciples said to Him, Lord, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Come on, Jesus. Everybody's touching you. Don't you see all these people? Everybody's got their hands on you. You're such a celebrity. We can't even pass through town without everybody wanting to get just a fingertip on you. You ask, who touched me? Everybody touched you. Verse 32, Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. What's going to happen now? The tension is starting to mount here. Is Jesus going to say to this woman, Woman, what are you thinking? You're unclean. You're not supposed to be touching people. You don't have any business being in the middle of this big heavy crowd and you sure don't have any business coming and touching me. What are you thinking? Is that how Jesus is going to respond? Verse 34. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see what we've learned there about the power of Jesus? Verse 34 shows us that Jesus' power is a power that is accessed by faith. It is the woman's faith that connects her to Jesus and His power. One writer said it this way. He said, it was the grasp of her faith rather than the touch of her hand that secured this healing. It was her actions that were motivated and prompted by faith in Jesus that caused the power to come forth. And I think that's exactly right. Think about this woman's faith. Her faith is imperfect. She does not know everything. She does not understand everything. In fact, in some ways, maybe her faith even smacks of superstition. But her faith, as incomplete as it is, it accesses the power that Jesus Christ provides and it makes her well. Now, I'm watching that scene play out with that woman. And I'm listening to the things that Jesus says to her in verse 34. He's saying some words of encouragement to her. Saying some things about faith. And I'm just marveling at the whole scene of what's taking place here. But in the background, there's still somebody standing there waiting, isn't there? Jairus is still there. And what's Jairus thinking? What's Jairus doing? 
I imagine Jairus was... He's fidgeting. He's stomping those toes. I mean, come on, Jesus. My daughter. My daughter's sick. She's dying, Lord. Lady, this is, it's amazing what's happened to you, and I'm so happy for you, but, but my daughter, she's going to die, Lord. Come on, we got to go. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now up to this point, Jesus has done a lot of amazing things. He's calmed the stormy sea. He's cast out demons. He's healed sickness and disease of every kind. But this, ah, this is, this is on a whole nother level. This girl is dead. And so everybody says, everybody concludes, I mean, there's nothing else that can be done. Death is, is the most final thing that there is. Nothing can be done for this girl. Verse 36 now. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Can I get you to tie together verse 36 and verse 34? Jairus, buddy, didn't you see what just happened with that woman there? Didn't you just see what happened whenever there's faith present? Faith, Jairus. Faith is what we need in this circumstance. Verse 37, He allowed no one to follow Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. People who often ask, you know, well, why did Jesus take those three to go along with Him? And the answer is, we don't know. Don't know why He picked just those three guys. Maybe it was a small house and maybe there just wasn't enough room for you know, everybody to go in all at once. We don't really know. All we know is Jesus wanted there to be some eyewitnesses there. And He selects these three to go along with Him. Verse 38 now. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. Funerals in Jewish culture were and still are a really big deal. You were expected, and I think some of this is probably still even true today, you were expected, even if you were really, really poor, and even if you were impoverished, by custom, you were expected to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional wailer whenever there was a funeral. Think about that. Think about if your job is to be a professional wailer. Hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, I, I wail. I show up at funerals and just, oh, just weep and wail loudly all day long. But that's what was going on there. There's weeping, there's wailing in that house. Verse 39, when Jesus had entered, He said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Now I want you to make no mistake about this. This girl, she is Dead. Luke's account makes that abundantly clear. Luke was a doctor. I think he'd know what he was talking about. She is dead. Jesus is simply using the metaphor of sleep here because he knows what's about to take place. She's not going to be dead for long. Verse 40 now. They all laughed at him. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in there where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means... Little girl, I say to you, arise. Now we might wonder there in verse 41, why it is that Mark records that Aramaic expression. And I think that that actually may have something to do with Peter. 
You may remember, I've mentioned this in the Wednesday night class, and I think I mentioned this several months ago. Mark's Gospel is believed to have been written as the eyewitness account of the things that Peter saw. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter talks about how John Mark was with him, doing things with him. And many people believe that Mark's Gospel was simply a retelling of the things that Peter saw, the things that Peter witnessed. And I think that Peter being present in that room on that day, seeing the power of Jesus to bring someone from death to life, I think that moment was burnt into Peter's memory forever. So much so that he was able to remember maybe where he was standing in the room. He was able to remember where everything was. And he specifically was able to remember the exact words that Jesus spoke, never ever to forget what he witnessed that day. What he saw was a demonstration of power unlike anything that he'd ever seen before. It was the power to give life to the dead. And so verse 42 says, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Think about it. Just a few moments prior, many of these folks were laughing at Jesus, verse 40 says. But now... Now they are overcome with awe and astonishment and amazement. And why? Because Jesus, the miracle worker, exercises power. He exercises power even over death. Now, I began this morning by talking about power. And in all honesty, it really doesn't matter what you deem as having lots of power and being powerful, whether it's a big rocket or a big bomb or a big storm or even a great leader. It doesn't matter. Because all of those and really anything else that you could think of, all of those things pale in comparison to the awesome power of Jesus the Christ. Now, you might be thinking this morning, as we studied and went through Mark chapter 5, you may have been thinking to yourself, yeah, Josh, you know, all that's great. It's good to be reminded of that. It's good to have our you know, faith bolstered once again and studying those things and being reinforcing the power of Jesus. But in all honesty, none of that really applies to me or to, to people today at all. Because I, I'm not possessed by a demon. And I'm not walking around with some kind of a life-threatening blood disease like that woman. And I'm certainly not dead like that little girl. And so all of that power that Jesus demonstrated, it really was only of benefit to that man and that woman and that little girl in Mark chapter 5. And if you are thinking that this morning, you would be entirely wrong. Because I want to submit to you this morning, That Jesus Christ's power, it is still at work even today. And you can see it. But you're not going to see it if you're looking for something physical. You're only going to see it if you look at it through spiritual eyes. Because think about this. Jesus does indeed have the power to rescue sinners from the clutches of the devil. In Acts 26 and in verse 18, Jesus said that He is able to turn people from darkness to light. That He is able to turn people from the power of Satan 
to the power of God. Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from the devil's dominion and the devil's control. And yes, that power continues, even to this day, to be accessed by faith. Just like that sick woman with the discharge of blood, that power is accessed by faith. In Romans 1 and in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Faith. Faith is what connects us to that saving power. And then thirdly, it is faith. And it is faith in the powerful working of God that causes a sinner to be plunged in and under the waters of baptism, passing that person from spiritual death to being made alive together with Him. As Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 teaches. That power, the power of Jesus in men and women's lives, that power is available today. It is available at this present moment. And I'm going to tell you this morning, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how much bad stuff you have done. It doesn't matter the extremity of the bad stuff that you've done. Jesus, Jesus has the power to change everything. And to change everything for the better. And I'll tell you this as well. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter what the issue might be. We all struggle with all kinds of different things. Whether it's a a family problem or a work problem or a, a health problem, a mental problem, whatever it is. Jesus. Jesus has the power to help you overcome those things. By His sacrifice on His on the cross. By His precious blood that was shed. You and I have the opportunity to access that great power by an obedient faith. And we're singing this song this morning to encourage you to do just that. If we can help you this morning to access the amazing power of Christ and His blood, then won't you come forward and make those wishes known while we stand and while we sing.